Okay, so as you see there, we, were, we are in a series called Reboot, where we are talking about fresh perspectives and clean slates. Welcome again to Cornerstone. Sometimes people will be just watching or listening to the message. So I'm Pastor Brian Foreman, and we are glad that you are listening in or watching. For everybody, whether you're here on site or watching online or watching at some other point later on demand, we would love for you to check in. We would love to know that you are here. We want to be able to be praying for you and stay in touch with you. So uh, you can do that digitally by downloading our app and checking in on the app, or you can also go online at cornerstonenh.org slash here. And if you're here, of course, you have a check-in card in your growth guide. And everybody look back towards the back corner. You might recognize that little piece of woodwork there. Uh, you can put your check-in cards in that box on your way out today. Uh, so reboot, fresh perspectives and clean slates. And what I've been doing is uh, between the beginning of the year and, the, and Easter, I want us to be able to do some reboot. Sometimes it's a reboot in our thinking. We need to think differently about something. Sometimes it is a clean, fresh start. We need to have a fresh approach or a fresh start to uh, something. Uh, and also, as we sung about this morning with that new song, sometimes we need a renewal or refreshing in our spiritual lives as well. So I hope that some blend of all of those things will be your experience uh, during this season at Cornerstone. Uh, today uh, is more along the lines of thinking differently about something, getting a fresh perspective on something. And uh, the message, as you might have noticed, is called Clarify the Win. Clarify the Win. Now, I, I always like to try to give credit where uh, I get some ideas from, and I first ran across this phrase in this book. It's called Seven Practices of Effective Ministry by Andy Stanley, Reggie Joyner, and Lane Jones. And one of those practices is called Clarifying the Win. Here's the idea, that in order to know, see, in things like sports, for example, you know, we're kind of in between uh, almost to the end of the NFL season. We will know with great clarity if you watch the Super Bowl who's winning and who has won. Why? Because they keep score, right? And we know that a touchdown is six points plus the extra point is seven points. You can go for two. You can score a field goal and get three points. We know how it works. We can look at the scoreboard while the game is going on and know who's winning. And when the time hits zero, we know who has won because that's the person who has the team that has the most points. But sometimes in life, it is not as clear cut. What is the scoreboard for your marriage? What is the scoreboard for your job? What is the scoreboard for us as a church? And the question that we will all be facing in each of those situations is, how will I know if I'm on the right track? Again, if you're playing sports, pretty easy. Glance up at the, at, the, at the scoreboard. You will know. What is the scoreboard in these various aspects of our life? And um, this can cause confusion if you don't know what you're scoring or how you're winning. 
it can uh, cause delays, it can cause frustration, and, and a lot of times that can be avoided if we can figure out how to measure a win accurately, right? Because sometimes we get the idea that winning looks like this, and we get discouraged because our life doesn't look like this, but what if winning actually is this? It's something different. And you thought you were losing, but you're actually winning. Or you thought you were winning, but you are actually losing. So we want to clarify the win. We want to know, how is it that I will know if I'm on the right track or not? So today, what we're actually talking about is success. How are we going to define success? And you'll be very shocked to find out that the bottom line for today's message is clarify the win. Clarify the win. And that what we'll do is talk about some of the benefits of doing that. And I'm going to go through them quickly. Don't try to write them down. I'm going way too fast. We'll come back to them. They are <laughs> two. Recognize what is not a win. If you clarify the win, you'll recognize what is not a win. Secondly, you'll avoid conflict, confusion, and wasted effort. And thirdly, you will make better decisions and have fewer regrets. So the next step that I'm going to challenge you to, I'm not going to tell you till the end because it's going to kind of tie together all of these ideas and I kind of want to build a little drama into it as well. So uh, what we're going to do is look at a passage. This is Luke chapter 12. It's a parable that Jesus told and this is going to be kind of a case study in defining the win. So let's look at it together. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Again, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. There's a setup and then a story that Jesus tells. So Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Here we go. Then someone called from the crowd. This is... Uh, Jesus teaching before a group of people, These, uh, and this is what happens. Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Verse 16, then he told a story, them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And then I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would speak to us through it. Lord, I stand here in the confidence of knowing that the Holy Spirit who inspired your word is present and active in our world today. 
So I pray, Lord, for each one of us, myself included, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us. Show us exactly what we need to hear from what we talk about today and exactly how to apply it, how to put it into practice in our lives so that our lives will be better and you will be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at this case study and then we'll apply it to a couple of different things in our lives. And remember, we are going to clarify the win. And in this setting, we see somebody who has defined a win in a way that is not accurate. When you clarify the win, one of the benefits for that is you will recognize what is not a win. Recognize what is not a win. So the setup is, of course, Jesus is out and there's a crowd. There's a guy who yells out to him, hey, tell my brother to split our inheritance. So, I mean, that seems pretty reasonable. You know, if their father had died away and there was something that belonged to him, maybe don't know the exact situation. But interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't deal with that particular situation. He, in essence, says, I'm not gonna get involved. But what he does do is he addresses the heart behind the request. He's addressing the heart behind the request. Very often, Jesus would take a situation, a request, an experience, and was able to just kind of dive a little bit deeper under the surface and figure out exactly what was going on and address that. And that's exactly the kind of thing that he does in this situation. So he uses it as a teachable moment. So we'll pick it up in verse 15. Jesus said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Now, greed says never enough. Greed says more. It doesn't matter how much you have, how many of your needs are met, how much excess you have. Greed is always saying more. So he's saying, be on the lookout. Guard against every kind of greed. And then he kind of gives one of the bottom lines that Jesus has given throughout his teaching. And he says, life is not measured by how much you own. Life is not measured by how much you own. So one of the things about clarifying the win is you'll recognize when something is not a win. Now, for many people, this is the win, Right, but when I uh, many years ago there was a bumper sticker that was pretty popular. It said, "He who dies with the most toys wins." Exactly. (laughs) So you would see that usually on a big truck or a BMW or something like that. It was the idea. Look, if 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 you're gonna win, you're this is this is very 80s. That's why Kent and I are the only ones that know this. Uh, but it, it's the idea that if you just accumulate stuff, that's what a win is. That's what a win is in our life. But he says, no, beware against that mindset that says more, 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 more. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. He's going to illustrate it with a parable. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. Now, to Jesus' original audience, that was like, win, win, win. 
I mean, this, this, is what, this is what a winning, successful life looks like. He's rich. He has more than enough. He has a fertile farm that produced fine crops. This is a guy who is winning. So he pre- presents the kind of archetype, arch, uh, uh, archetype of a winner in someone who is successful in that culture. This is a win. That was you know, the default. They would think, oh, this guy is winning. And so he has this bumper crop and he's doing so well that even the barns, now barns store stuff. He, he, he's got all he needs, he's storing stuff, but he still doesn't have enough room for all of his crops. So he's asking himself, what should I do? This is very practical. If you understand what a win is, then you will make the right decisions accordingly. If you misunderstand what success looks like and what winning looks like, then you will make wrong decisions. This is very practical. So he says, what should I do? I don't have room for all of my crops. We're talking about clarifying the win. What's one of the benefits? It's going to help you to recognize when you are not winning, but it also avoids conflict, confusion, and wasted effort. And we'll see that in the next scene. But let's think about this for just a second. You avoid conflict. If you're at work and you and the people around you have two different ideas, two or three, four, however many people there are, different ideas about what success looks like, then you're gonna be in conflict. If you're in a marriage and you don't agree on what success looks like and the direction that you should be going in, then that's going to cause conflict. If you are leading others and it's not clear, well, this is the direction we're going, this is what a win looks like, then there's going to be confusion among the people that you are responsible for. And also, if you're aiming in the wrong direction, you're going to waste effort. Again, we're kind of in the football season. There are a couple of very famous plays where somebody recovered a fumble or caught an interception or something like that and ran the wrong way. They scored on the wrong end zone. That can happen. It's wasted effort. So what's the wasted effort here? So he says, the man who, has, who is rich, who has fertile fields, bumper crops, more than he knows what to do with. He said, I know I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And again, to the original audience and maybe to some of our audiences, they would have thought, well, that's the logical thing to do. If you have more stuff, you make more space for your more stuff. And then he says, and I love this. This is kind of, some, some people don't think that Jesus had a sense of humor. Jesus had a, a good sense of humor. This is kind of funny, actually. He sits back and he says to myself, well, uh, how do you address yourself? Do you say, my friend, <laughs> my best friend, my good buddy, look at, what, look at what you got going on. Everything is all set. You have enough stored away for years to come. Now, you've earned it. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Just enjoy it all because it's all for you and you are set for life. So far, again, seems like this guy's winning. Seems like things are going pretty well for him. 
Seems like we'd like to be in that position sometimes. But the turn comes in verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Recently, we talked about not what, but who. He had a lot of the what, but who was his who? It seemed to be him and him himself, my good friend, myself. So uh, what do we see here? Bottom line, clarify the win. If you do that, you will make better decisions and have fewer regrets. Now, this is also an Andy Stanley line. This is the tagline for you, Your Move, which is their TV show. But it's a good line, so I'm going to borrow it. You will make better decisions and have fewer regrets, regrets if you define the win accurately. Let's go back to what the Lord said to him. But God said, you fool. You've, han- you've handled things wrong. You've blown it. You're not winning, you're failing, big time. You will die this very night. Why does that matter? Then who will get everything you worked for? The who in this guy's life was himself. But what's going to happen? Let's answer this question. You know how we've talked about the Bible is meditation, literature? Jesus doesn't come out and spell this out exactly. It requires a little bit of thinking about it. Okay, well, the answer to that is somebody else, right? I mean, he's stored up all of this stuff, and now because he's dead, it's going to go to someone else. What's the alternative? So he sums, Jesus sums it up by saying this, that's how it is. This is what it looks like. With the one who stores up treasures for himself, my good friend me, and is not rich toward God. Now let's think about that for a second. Whether he gives it away while he's living or gives it away at his death, He's still going to give it away one way or another. So the answer to who is going to get all of this is always someone else. My good friend, me, is not going to hold on to it forever. You never see a U-Haul trailing a hearse. You can't take it with you. You're going to give it all away. So what's the difference between storing up treasure for yourself and being rich towards God? It's not if you're going to give it away or not, because you're going to, one way or another. But you can give it away in such a way that you're losing from God's perspective, from an eternal perspective, and are foolish, or you can give it away in such a way that you become rich toward God. Isn't that kind of interesting? You're going to give it away. And the question is, in giving it away, are you going to win or are you going to lose? You're going to give it away one way or another. Now, uh, there were times when Jesus told people who came to him, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. 
That's not generally how it works, but I, I, I mean, we see that you're supposed, Jesus went to parties, he went to weddings, you can spend money on a wedding, you can throw a party. He was always going to dinner parties, needs were met, you have responsibilities to take care of, so it's not that you can't do that kind of thing. But what he's saying is for your wealth, your excess, the things that as above and beyond what your needs are, you can give them away in such a way that it is to your credit and, to, and becomes a win, or you can give it away when you're dead and you lose it all and have not gained anything from it. So one way to think about this, uh, another pastor that um, I really admire because of many well-known pastors who have a lot of affluence and influence. He's one of the few who has maintained his integrity through that process is Rick Warren. About two decades ago, Rick Warren wrote a book that many of you have read called The Purpose Driven Life. And as a result of that, he became affluent and influential. He had a lot of money and people started calling him and asking him what he thought about a lot of things. Now, he was a pastor, so this was a new experience for him. And so he was praying about it and thinking about it, and he said he ran across Psalm 72. And Psalm 72, purported to be written by Solomon. Solomon was the richest king most uh, at the apex of the, of the, of the Israelite kingdom's uh, power and influence. And in Psalm 72, he's basically praying for more, more wealth, more influence, more territory, more. So what, what, what is the difference between that and greed? It's the purpose for which he's asking it. He's asking for more so that he can leverage that power and wealth for those that have none. And so he came to the conclusion, and I think this is one of the key verses as I read through it and looked at it. This is verse 12 of Psalm 72, talking about the king. He will rescue the poor when they cry to him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. So he came to the conclusion that the reason that, that God gives people affluence is so that they can give it away to rescue the poor, to fund people, to resource people who have no resources. And he came to the conclusion that the reason that God gives us influence, is so, a voice, is so that we can speak for those who have no voice, to help those who have no one to defend them. And I thought that was pretty good. Uh, God, you, if you define the win accurately when it comes to things in your life like affluence and influence, then you can leverage them, you can steward them, you can manage them in such a way that is to your credit. So that when you get to the end of life, and you have spent it all, all of your time, all of your influence, all of your wealth, you will be giving it away in such a way that it will be to your credit. It will be a win and not a loss. So let's kind of think through this, this whole idea. This was kind of a case study in clarifying the win, particularly when it comes to our resources, to our wealth. But this has application to a lot of different ways. So we say that following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life. How can this principle, this concept, 
of defining the win accurately make your life better? Well, let's talk about affluence and influence and power in general. This will be something that you've heard before from me. This is the idea of authority. Anytime that God gives you authority, you are over someone or responsible for someone, you have power or wealth or authority, this is how it works. All authority is God's authority. Nobody has authority in and of themselves. If you have power or leverage over someone, that is something that God has given to you. It's his authority. What he does is he loans it to those of us who are in authority. If you're the boss, if you're the business owner, if you're the mom and dad, if you're the teacher, if whatever the case may be, anytime you have authority, it's God's authority, he's loaned it to you. For what purpose? So you can say, friend, my friend, look at all the power and authority that you have. How can you leverage it for your benefit? No, that's not how it works. For the benefit of those under their authority. It's given to you. It's God's, but he gives it to you so that you can use it, leverage it for the benefit of others. And eventually, we are going to be held accountable for and for which those in authority, that authority, we will, for those in authority, we will be held accountable. Someday, you're going to have to give an account. So how do you use this? Defining a win, if God gives you power, leverage, authority, wealth, influence, whatever, the degree to which you are winning is the degree to which you are leveraging that for the benefit of those that don't have that. That's a win. Let's talk about marriage. Uh, From the early chapters of the Bible, we learn that the goal of marriage is oneness. This is very practical and very helpful. This is found in Genesis 2.24. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. I learned something this week that I did not know before. Uh, Most of us are familiar with the the translation in Genesis where it says that uh, God put Adam to sleep, took a rib out of his side, and made woman. What this Hebrew scholar said he, he reads the Bible in Hebrew. I know a little Hebrew. I don't read the Bible in Hebrew. But he said that the word for rib was not translated in Hebrew rib until long, long, long after that time. It just literally means side. So it's, uh, and the, the next time that it's used is when it's talking about the Ark of the Covenant, the box that the Ten Commandments were built in, and it said you put a pole on one side and you put a pole on the other side. Now, a box doesn't have ribs. That wouldn't make sense. But it's the same word there. It's side and side. And so the idea there is that, that a man and a woman together in marriage are two sides of the same human coin. Right? They are, they are two sides of the same. And when a man and a woman are joined in marriage, the goal is oneness. Well, what does that look like? We think the same things about things. It's not that we're the same. We complement one another. We fit together well. We benefit one another. Sometimes the conflicts that are caused in marriage because we're different, we think that, that that's a problem. Very often, God has put you with somebody different because you need that person. You need the balance of that person. It's only together as two sides of the same one that you can be complete. 
So that's the idea. If you have that as your goal, then you're not going to do things in your marriage that break that oneness. A lot more to say about that, but that's the, the general idea. Let's talk about it from the idea of parenting. For a long time, I, I, I had a lot of confusion. I was like, how, how do you define a win as parents? Um, you know, we want certain things for our kids. We want certain things from our kids, but we don't always have control over those things. What is what we can control, and how does, how does the Scripture define good parenting? Here's how it defines good parenting. Good parents mirror the Heavenly Father to their children. Good parents mirror the Heavenly Father to their children. That is my goal. That is my responsibility is to, uh, beginning when they're tiny, little, to say, okay, my, my job is to, be, to reflect the character of God to them. Did I always live up to that? Of course not. But, but eventually I figured out, okay, that's my goal. That's, that's what it should look like because kids are concrete thinkers. They can't understand God invisible in heaven, but they can relate to their parents. And if they learn, this is what my parents are like, and then if they do their job well, they're like, oh, that's what God is like. And then they know how to trust them because they've had somebody in their lives that has their best interests at heart that will leverage their power and authority for their benefit that will treat them with compassion and loving kindness and faithfulness and model that character you need god in your life to do that by the way (laughs) you know that's not going to happen on its own but the more that i do that the more successful i am as a parent now god is a perfect heavenly father and his children respond to him in different ways. We can all speak autobiographically about that. But the one thing that's consistent in that relationship is him. And so that's what our aim as parents should be. Once you clarify the win, it makes everything else fall into place. I see this in another key verse, Genesis 1.27. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. We are to reflect God, not just to the world, but in particular, when, God, when Jesus wanted to describe, what's our relationship with God like? How did he begin his prayer? Our Father, right? So that's how that works. So a win is perfectly within your control as a parent. It's not dependent on your kids and how they respond to that. So uh, what's a win for us as a church? And here's where I'll wrap it up. A win for us is a wholehearted follower of Jesus. That's why we say we exist to inspire and equip you to follow Jesus wholeheartedly because that's what we're aiming for. That is our win. We get that from the Great Commission to go and make disciples, people who are apprenticing in the way of Jesus, just like as parents, we reflect the Heavenly Father to our families. That's our goal. That's our aim. That's a win. In the same way, a follower of Jesus, the more that they act like Jesus, internalize Jesus' values, think like Jesus, act like Jesus if, as if he were here in this place, what would he do if he were in my shoes? That's a win. I'm going to apprentice in the ways of Jesus. That's the great 
commission. Follow it up with the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, to be wholehearted in that. Not half-hearted, not if it's convenient, not if I understand, not if it works for me in my schedule. It's sold out all in. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's no such thing in the Bible as a half-hearted, halfway, part-time follower of Jesus. It's all in or nothing. That's what you signed up for if you are a believer. I hope you understood that. So what do we do? We inspire and equip people to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. This began as my idea for what I want to do with my preaching. I want to inspire. I want by the end of the day for you to say, wow, following Jesus is so much better than any other option. And then I want to equip you. I want to give you the tools and the resources that you need in order to do that. That's why we describe our church and we aim to be a greenhouse so that you come in here. We provide things that will inspire and equip you, the right resources, the right environment for you to thrive as a follower. And that's why membership is so important because membership is primarily a spiritual growth tool. If you do these things, you will grow. They're not the essence of, of, of spiritual maturity, but they provide an environment that leads you to spiritual maturity. So what is our scoreboard? It's our members. More members, the more we're winning. So I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to check out membership at Cornerstone. Now, in order to be a part of the body of Christ at Cornerstone, you first have to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means. So the secondary thing the thing that leads to wholehearted followership. If you're going to be a disciple, you have to start being a disciple. And you do that when you say yes to Jesus. And that's symbolized and celebrated through baptism. So if you haven't been baptized, you want to follow Jesus, that is your next step. So how would I describe the next step? In order to clearly define the win, to know this, this is a process Notice it was the seven practices. You have to get in the practice of seeing things from Jesus' perspective, defining success through his eyes in every aspect of your life. When I started out having children, when I started out being married, I didn't understand those things. And when I started out as a pastor, I had a misshapen view of success as well. So it is a lifelong process, and you do that by first becoming a member of Jesus' church, a part of his body, saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to his forgiveness for the past, yes to his leadership, his authority in your life and over your life for the future. That's what you symbolize through baptism. And you become a part of a local church body. That's membership at Cornerstone. I mentioned to you just briefly that when I started out as a pastor, I had a misshapen view of success. And it's kind of like the beginning of the parable of the rich farmer. Uh, if you described my idea of success when we started Cornerstone, you would have said, yeah, that makes sense. You know, how, how do people define success in church? People in seats offerings, buildings, 
reaching people for Jesus. Those are kind of the things. If you reach people for Jesus, those kinds of things are going to happen, right? And that is true to an extent. But I had to redefine success for me because not all those things are necessarily under my control and it could lead to a misshapen view of what my job is, what my role is, and what success is. And so over time, reading scriptures, reflecting on my experience, I came to a very different conclusion. And I think this will work for you in whatever you do as well as a follower of Jesus, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your work, in your church. Success for me is faithfulness. Success is for faithfulness. In another story, parable, Jesus said, the, the kind of the, the crowning achievement in his servant's life in this story was for the master to say what? Well done, my good and faithful servant. And I've defined faithfulness as doing what God calls me to do when he calls me to do it and leaving the results to him. Faithfulness is doing what God has called me to do when he calls me to do it and leaving the results to him. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to be faithful. We want to be wholehearted. We want to accurately define what a win looks like in our lives, and that's the way you define a win. So Lord, I pray that you would help me help my brothers and sisters, my friends, to accurately identify what a win looks like in their life. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people who are faithful and wholehearted. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us specifically what that means for us and the decisions that we make moment by moment, day in, day out, in the different roles and responsibilities that you have granted us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.